turn with me to the Gospel of John, the 8th chapter. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 37 through 47, which will serve as the basis for the morning message. And I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to join me silently as I read it aloud. John 8:37. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. On Tuesday night, Major League Baseball's All-Star Game will be played in our nation's capital. There will be various alumni who will be in attendance at that game. One will be Pedro Martinez. Martinez, one of the greatest pitchers in the modern era of professional baseball. His record was 219 wins to 100 losses. Over two-thirds of the games, a decision was reached in that he pitched in, came his way. Amazing. He had a strikeout ratio of 10 per every nine innings. That's unheard of. His ERA, the earned run average, which is actually the measuring stick for a pitcher's success, was below three runs per nine innings. He's in rarefied air with other great pitchers who are Hall of Famers. He's a Hall of Famer, elected on the first time that he was able to be elected And he got over 90% of the vote. Amazing kind of statistics. In probably his best performance as an All-Star, he was in several All-Star games, was in 2005. Most of the time, pitchers in professional baseball in the All-Star game only pitch one inning because there's so many of them, and there's typically only about nine innings to play. But he was doing so well, he was given two innings He struck out five of the six. And remember, these are all-star batters. These aren't your average hitters. These are the best of the best in professional baseball. Later that fall, he did not have quite the success 
as he was pitching for his Boston Red Sox team in the American League Championship Series against their arch rivals, the Yankees. And they were playing in New York. He came out of the bullpen to relieve something he rarely ever did, but because so much was on the line, it was the last game to decide who would be the winners of the American League Championship and go on to the World Series. He came out and he was literally blasted by the Yankees. The Yankees fans blasted him too. They began to chant, Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? The background of that was that earlier when he had given a dominant performance of the Yankees, it wasn't the only time he did that, he basically said to the press, the Yankees need to find out who their daddy is, who's their daddy. So it was payback time for Pedro, for sure. The term, who's your daddy, you probably figured it out already. It's not a complimentary question that's being asked, actually. It's a slang term for a bold claim of domination of intended hearers. So, when that kind of taunt was given by Pedro and then given back to him by the Yankees, it was a statement of, we're dominating or I'm dominating at this time. I began to research my own memory bank. Going back to the year I graduated from high school, believe it, 50 years ago. Can you imagine? Most of you say, yeah, we're wondering, we're not longer than that. Fifty years ago, the zombies came out with a song, Time of the Season. And the chorus goes like this, What's your name? Who's your daddy? Is he rich like me? When we think about this text of Scripture, Jesus basically causes us to ask the question, Who is your daddy? Who is your father? We know that in the home in which Jesus was raised, When he first spoke to Joseph, he would have called him Abba, which in his language, Aramaic, would have been like Mama or Dada in our language. And when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, undoubtedly because he would have been speaking in the native tongue, which was translated later into Greek, which our New Testament is written in, he would have taught those who first heard it who themselves probably didn't even understand Greek. Maybe a little bit, but not much. He would say, Our Abba, who art in Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is a picture of intimacy with God. Jesus says, Either God is your Father or Satan is your Father. It's true. In this room, there are two categories of people. I don't know which category you will fit in, but hopefully you'll have a better picture of that before we finish looking at what Jesus has to say. If God is your Father, what we know about Him, He's not rich like us. He's super rich. And the thing He's most rich in, I would suggest to you today, is His mercy for us. He is a merciful God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, this is the way the Holy Spirit describes our God, who is our Father, those of us who are His children. 
He describes us as people who are subject to the Father of mercies. If we were to go to Psalm 136, many of you have been reading through the Map Journal, and if so, you have read recently the 136th Psalm. There are 26 verses, each two lines, and the second line of each of the 26 verses read the same. The Lord is good. His mercy or everlasting love endures forever. This is true of our God. When I woke up this morning, and when you woke up this morning, if you are one who is a child of God, you are His child, He is your Father, then what you woke up to was the prospect of His mercies being new every morning. Our God is rich in mercy. And He conveys that to us. And we're going to see how not only does He convey it to us in terms of our benefiting from it, but He conveys it to us so we can be agents of mercy as well. Now, think about Satan. He's rich. He's rich in misery. Jesus says as much in John chapter 10, verse 10, where He says about him, the thief, speaking of Satan, comes to steal to kill, and to destroy. I would say that is a merchant of misery, wouldn't you? That's where the preponderance, the majority of people in this world find themselves today, I'm sad to say. And it could be that you're still under the control of the evil one without even knowing it. And here's what the Bible says in the book of 1 John chapter 5. The whole world lies under the control of of the evil one. The whole world system, not the physical world, the universe, but the world system that consists of my wanting attention, my wanting the applause of people rather than the glory of God. It consists of my wanting something that belongs to you that I don't need. It consists also of my wanting to fulfill my God-given natural appetites in a manner that contradicts the parameters, the boundaries which God has placed around the fulfilling of those appetites. That's the world system. Satan is in charge of that. And before we become children of God, we find us, ourselves rather, under his jurisdiction. He is, in a sense our Father, as was the case with these people that Jesus was jousting with about what real family of God is like. So having said that, let us now look in some detail. First of all, if Satan is your daddy, if Satan is your father, you will be rich in misery just like he is. You'll be rich in misery. Let's look at verse 44 of our text, which is really the centerpiece verse. And we're going to look at all the verses in this text and learn from Jesus today. We trust by the Holy Spirit's teaching us what it's like to be a child of Satan as opposed to what it's like to be a child of God. Look at verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Here's what is characteristic of people who are under the control of the evil one. 
They want to do the will of the Father. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 29? He says, I have come to do the will of my Father. People outside the umbrella of protection as God's children, they want to do the desires to do the will of their father, the devil. Which raises a very important question. What are his desires? Well, let's read a little further in 44. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. He was a murderer from the beginning. Who was the first human murderer in history? Cain. Do you remember the interaction that God had with Cain before Cain murdered his brother Abel? Do you remember? The interaction was God knew what was going on in the heart of Cain. His sacrifice was not adequate to the Lord. His brother Abel's had been pleasing to the Lord. And the Lord said to him, you need to rethink this, Cain. And I see something in your face that would indicate that you are a candidate for Satan coming and doing something in and through you that will have long-standing consequences. He didn't listen. And God says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Now let's recall that the personification of sin, rebellion against God, self-centeredness, is Satan himself. And so Satan was crouching at the door, desiring domination over Cain, and he got it. And Cain killed. He murdered his brother. So from the beginning, Satan has been a murderer, and also it is true of his children. Look at verse 37. The last part of verse 37. Jesus says to those who were physical descendants of Abraham, and let me pause and make note of this. This is not talking about all the descendants of Abraham. It's talking about a group whom John the Apostle describes throughout the Gospel as the Jews. You will recall, as I taught through the book of John, that we've identified these as a select elite group of leaders, if you would like to call them, who were described by John as the Jews. But what he says about these folks, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. They sought to kill the Lord. They wanted to murder Him. Look at verse 40. Jesus says, But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. They wanted to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so wanting, they tipped their hand. They were children of Satan. Now you might say, I've never killed anybody. It's probably not a murderer in the physical sense in this congregation today. But there's probably not a single person here today who has not murdered someone in your heart. Jesus gets us on the hook, as it were, when He teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that if I am angry at you, then I have committed murder in my heart. Now, I must confess, with that understanding of murder, and all physical murder begins in the heart of people. 
and it's due to anger. Someone doesn't please me. Someone doesn't agree with me. I disagree with him or her. And in my heart, I get angry and I kill that person. Well, we're all guilty of being murderers. But what we see here is that the ongoing mentality of Satan is to murder. He has murderous thoughts on his mind constantly. And those who follow him do likewise. And the reason is given to us is very instructive. If we look again at verse 37, look at it again. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word has no place in you. The word of the Lord is truth. That's what the Bible says. Jesus speaking to the Father says, Your word is truth. And as we've read through this passage, you've already seen it. I need to point it out again. That the devil has no truth in him. He is a liar. He cannot stand the truth. Nor does he stand in the truth. He tries to manipulate the truth when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. You may remember that. He quoted Scripture, but he twisted it. He had no intention of giving the context context of what he was saying. And he was trying to trick Jesus into sin, using the Scripture of all things. Well, there's no place for Jesus' Word in us because Satan is a thief. He's not only a murderer, but as Jesus says in John chapter 10, describing him, he is a thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Last week, as we sought to more understanding of what it means to really continue in the Word of the Lord, to abide in the Lord. We looked at the four soils in the parable of the soils that Jesus gives in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we discovered that one of the soils upon which the seed fell when a sower of the seed would fling it out was a hard beaten path incapable of allowing a seed to penetrate it and germinate and then burst through the ground and bear fruit. And then the birds come along on this hard path as the seed is thrown on it, and the birds come and they eat it up. We saw in Jesus' interpretation of the birds, that the birds represent Satan. So there are people probably in this room who have had the seed of the Word of God thrown your way. And because you have a heart of stone and not a heart of flesh yet, the result is that Satan quickly comes. He's always on the lookout for the opportunity to snatch the seed of the Word of God because he knows it's transformational. It transforms someone from being dead and deaf and blind to being alive and hearing and seeing. Transfers a person from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son of God, Jesus Christ, the kingdom of light. So, Satan is quick to try to snatch that seed away when it falls on a hard, dead, cold heart. He is a thief. He's also a liar. Let's go back to verse 44. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar. And he is the father of lies. The Bible shows us right out of the box in Genesis chapter 3, verse 
1 through 4, how the serpent who is embodied by Satan, or Satan is embodied by the serpent, comes and tempts Eve, and he says, has the Father forbidden you to eat of every tree in the garden? He says, oh no, Eve says, oh no, just one he forbids. It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She didn't describe it as that, but she knew what it was. She said, the tree in the middle of the garden. And he said, why don't you take it? The Lord, he wouldn't forbid you that. He wouldn't do that. God wouldn't. And you remember what she said? She said, well, the Lord said, if we eat it, what will happen to us? We will die. He said, surely God did not say you will die. So what's he doing? He's undermining the Word of God. He's lying about what God said. And these people in question, by the way, these so-called descendants of Abraham, children of God, whom they called Father, they were liars too. Look at verse 41. At least they had bought the lie of their father, the devil. Look at verse 41. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. They were lying about Jesus. Was Jesus born of fornication? To the contrary. He was born of the Spirit of God. His mother Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, and Jesus was born in her womb and finally born into this world. And they were accusing Him of being an illegitimate child, some of the translations say. The oldest translation that we have in hand uses this word, bastard. You're a bastard, basically, is what they were saying about him. They were audacious, weren't they? Not only were they lying about Jesus, but they were being like the devil because the word translated devil in verse 44 literally means slanderer. They were slandering Jesus while at the same time lying about the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 10, the Bible tells us about the devil. It says that Satan accuses those of us who know Jesus. We are children of God the Father. He accuses us day and night. So when I sin, if I sin today, and I know I have already today, If I sin, He accuses me. And He says, in effect, to God the Father, Okay, God, there's that so-called son of yours over here, and he sinned. What are you going to do about it, God? You can't countenance sin. You can't look on sin. You need to break the relationship with Him. Well, when that happens, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 7.25, Jesus while Satan is accusing us day and night, those of us who are children of God, while Satan is accusing us day and night, guess what Jesus is doing? He's living to make intercession for us. So when I sin, I stand before the Father condemned by Satan and frankly, accurately accused, I sin. But when I do what Jesus does, and I believe I'm on solid ground in saying this, He comes in between me and the Father. And He says, Father, remember the agreement that we made before the creation of the world? That you would choose 
Mike Woods to be your son through my redemptive work on the cross. And you and I agreed that if I went to the cross and paid for the sins of the world, Mike Woods would be included in that group of people whom you saved. And Father, do we remember that we agreed that there is not going to be any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus if they really were chosen by You, if they were adopted into Your family and You lavished Your grace upon them and Your mercy that You're never going to pull the rug out of Mike Woods. And Father, let me remind You that I still bear the marks of the payment for his sin. Now that could be multiplied hundreds of millions of times in the world today. For those of us who are children of God, we do sin. The devil is a slanderer. And I might add that when we participate in slanderous speech, we are, if we're children of God, we better be careful. We're not acting like children of God. We're acting like our once father, Satan, because that's the way he behaves. The Bible says about the devil that he has blinded the minds of unbelievers. The Bible also says in that same book of 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter and the 14th verse, that he disguises himself as an angel of light. And I might add, the words of Satan drown out the words of Christ in the hearts of people who are not receptive to the message of Christ. Look at verse 43. It says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Why can't people who are under the influence of Satan receive the word of Christ? Because there's no truth in Satan, and they, as a result, cannot hear. Because they're deaf, they can't hear the word of the Lord. The word can be taught, the word can be shared, but they do not hear. Look at verse 45. Jesus says, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. He could speak a lie and they would have believed him. Why? Because that was the language of their father. That's the language that they were accustomed to. They couldn't receive the truth. And now look at verse 47, the last part. For this reason, you do not hear the words of God because you are not of God. Until a person becomes a true child of God, that person cannot understand the truth of God's Word. The person's ears are plugged up. And they have to be unplugged by the Spirit of God. We're going to see how that works in a little bit. Satan's children have a lifestyle of murdering, of lying, of stealing, of slandering. These are just a few of the things that the devil does. And let me ask you this question. I love my children. I can't imagine loving any other people more than I love my children. Two children. I have two grandchildren. I love my grandchildren. But do you know, they don't have to be taught to lie. They don't have to be taught 
to say ugly things about other people. Have you noticed that? They don't have to be taught to get mad at people when they don't do things their way, even at you as a parent or me as a grandparent. They don't even have to be taught to steal. It comes naturally to them. Why? Because they are children of... This is not complimentary, I'm sure, but it's true. And though the picture which is painted by Jesus of the children of Satan is not a complimentary picture, it is a compassionate picture. It's the epitome of compassion and mercy. Because we have to be confronted with our need for a change in our lives. And we have to come to the conclusion that we can't change ourselves. We cannot, by being good, make ourselves right with God. It is all His work. Well, so much for what Jesus says here about Satan's being our daddy. We will be rich in misery. You look out on our world. It's a miserable world, isn't it? People are hurting so badly. And a large part of that has to do with the fact that they're under the control of the devil who is their father. But let's turn our attention to a more inviting subject. If God is our Abba, our Daddy, our Father, we will be rich in mercy because He is rich in mercy. Look at verse 47, the first part. Here is why we will be rich in mercy. Look at it. He who is of God hears the words of God. Now, I didn't take time, I should have, to count all the usages of the term word in our English translations in this short section. There are multiple uses. Most of those in this section translate the word for the whole Bible. It's logos. When Jesus speaks in John 8, 31, when he says, if you continue or abide in my word, you will be true disciples of mine. The word, translated word, is the word logos. Continue in the whole word of God. When I pick up my Bible, I can pick it up at Genesis 1-1 and go to the last verse in Revelation. Everything between those two verses is the logos of God. Every bit of it. If I never open the book, it will remain the Logos, the Word of God. And we are set apart, Jesus says, by the truth, and the truth is the Logos of God. In this passage of Scripture, however, in verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. Jesus chooses another word. Be sure that Jesus was not haphazard in his choice of words. This word is the word rhema. Rhema is a word from the Logos that's customized for me. It's personalized. It's when God speaks to me. And in this passage of Scripture, the text would indicate, when, if you'll look at verse 39, Jesus says, Abraham is your father. And then he says, if you are Abraham's children, 
do the deeds of Abraham. Let's think about Abraham. What were his deeds? His deeds were deeds of faith. He is held up as the best example of a person of faith in all of Scripture. And he was a man whom God told at the age of 75, imagine this, at the age of 75, he was told by God to pack up his belongings and take his family. He didn't have any children. He had a nephew by the name of Lot. And take his belongings and go away from the Ur of the Chaldees. It was a pagan territory. And he didn't even know where he was going. Seventy-five years old. Didn't even know where he was going. Now, that's a picture of people who trust God. God tells them to do something, and they trust God, and they follow the Lord. Some of you are considering already, as I've talked, you're considering the probability, possibility of giving your life to Jesus today. And it's a journey. You don't know what that means. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But what we see here is Abraham, he launches out, and at the age of 75, God speaks to him. We see it in Genesis 12, it's reiterated in Genesis 15 and other places, and he says to him, I'm going to make a great nation of you. Amazing. Great nation of you. And that was a word that was customized for Abraham. And the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes how? From hearing or by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It's the word rhema that is used by Paul in chapter 10, verse 17. The word that's customized for you. So the Holy Spirit will speak to you just like He did to Abraham, not with the same message, but He will speak to you from the Logos. We're studying the Logos of God. We're studying John chapter 8, verses 37 through 47. And someone in this room has begun to sense, I would imagine, that God's speaking to you personally. It's like we're having a one-on-one conversation. You're wondering, how did you know I wanted or I needed to hear this message? Well, I didn't, but the Lord did. And Abraham, who is the great man of faith, as he goes forward at 75, he gets this promise. Twenty-four years pass. And Paul says in Romans chapter 4, he says, His faith did not waver. He stayed steadfast. And then he had a visitation from the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord said, By this time next year, you'll be holding a baby boy in your arms. And his wife, Sarah, was in the tent. She was eavesdropping on the conversation. And she laughed. She laughed at the suggestion because she knew she was way past the age of bearing children. She was 89 years old herself. But lo and behold, God did a miracle. He responded to the faith of Abraham and Sarah, I might add, as they trusted the Lord and God did something. Then, we don't know exactly how many years after the birth of this promised child, Isaac, that God came, it's recorded in Genesis chapter 22, He came again and He spoke to Abraham. It was one of those Ramah words. And he said, I want to take your son, your only son, take him to Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. Do you know what the Bible says? There's no suggestion that there was a debate between God and Abraham. 
his faith had grown. He had learned to trust God's voice. He had learned to follow the Lord. And so, probably without hesitation, because it says the next morning, early in the morning, he got a donkey, he got two of his servants, he got a knife, he got a lantern with some fire in it, and he put the wood on the back of probably what would have been his teenage son. And he struck out on a journey. And when he got to the foot of Mount Moriah, he said to his servants, you stay here, we will worship. That's a powerful statement. We will worship. Who is referred to there? Isaac and I will worship. He goes up the mountain. He binds his son. His son has said, well, Father, where is the lamb? And he said, God will provide the sacrifice. And he lay there. And the writer of Hebrews helps us here because he indicates that Abraham concluded, even if the Lord doesn't stop me and I take my son's life as a sacrifice, he'll raise him from the dead. And this is a type of what Christ did for us in the person of Jesus. Jesus died for us and he was raised from the dead. He is our lamb. Well, you know the rest of the story. God provided a ram in the thicket. He stopped him. The angel of the Lord told him, don't do it. He stopped him. But this is a picture of faith. Remember, the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. The Bible says in 1 John, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What is the love of the world? I've already mentioned it. The pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, those are the things of the world. And then in the book of James, the Bible says that whoever makes friends with the world makes himself or herself an enemy of God. So, we cannot straddle the fence. This is the will of God for us who are His children. And I am of the strong conviction, not simply an opinion, that when we come to Christ, there's something which is set in motion in us because God removes from us our spirit that's a dead spirit and He puts the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the Bible promises us in Ezekiel 36, 27 that He's going to move us to be careful, to be obedient to Him. It's an inevitability that we will move in the direction of being like the Lord Jesus Christ. We become more like Him because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We do not miss the opportunity as children of God to respond to Him. None of us does it all the time. But we do not have a lifestyle of stealing, murdering, slandering, any other sin you might want to plug in. But we are people who are under the mercy of God. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. If we are of the Father, we will love the Son. Because if we've seen the Son, that's the only way we know the Father. And we will love Him. 
eventually we'll find our way to the 14th chapter where Jesus elaborates on this in verses 23 through 24. We will grow to resemble Jesus as we follow Christ and the Word of the Lord. We will be like Him more and more. And we remember that Jesus is, according to Colossians 1.15, He is the visible expression of the invisible God. In the second chapter of Colossians, Paul writes, In Christ dwells all deity in fullness. And John tells us as he introduces the Gospel of John, of His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. So God has come to indwell us as we by faith have trusted the promises of God much like Abraham did. We will resemble the Lord in His mercy. Time will not permit other connections, but I'm going to talk about this. Jesus says in Luke 6, 36 and 37, Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. Remember, our Father, if He is God, is rich in mercy. And He lavishes His mercy upon us. And we in turn will be as I mentioned in passing earlier, we will be conveyors of that mercy to other people. We will. We'll stand for what's right, but we'll stand for what is merciful as well. In transitioning in the Gospel of God in the book of Romans, Paul makes this statement in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Many of you could quote it. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. How are we transformed? How are minds renewed? They're renewed by our exposing ourselves to the Word of God, continuing or abiding in the Word of God. That's how we have the mind of Christ. We expose ourselves to the truth. And remember what Jesus says? The truth has set you free. Free from what? From sin and domination by sin. Free from whom? The domination of the devil himself in your life. He's a bad dude, the devil is. Don't, don't mess with him. Because he has nothing but misery in mind for you. When Paul speaks of the basis upon his begging the Romans, to present their bodies as a living sacrifice to Him, giving themselves to Him. Think about some of the mercies that He's spoken of. I'm going to just touch on them. The mercy of justification, being made right with God, having peace with God. The mercy of adoption, being adopted into the family of God. The mercy of sanctification, being made more like Christ. The mercy of election being chosen in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. That is a stimulus. All the mercies for us to follow Christ and be like Him. How does one become God's child? We are fond, I am at least, of quoting John 1.12, but as many as received Him, that is Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. 
That's where we typically stop. We should go further because the sentence does not end in the original writing until the next verse. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. We have to be born again, born from above, born of God, if we are going to be people who are children of God. I can't raise myself from the dead. I can't open my ears so that I could hear. I'm blind before I come to Christ. I can't take the scales off of my eyes which keep me from hearing and responding to the Word. Only the Lord can do that. And He wants to do that for us. What's your name? Who's your daddy? Is he rich like me? And then I left out the rest of the chorus. Has he taken any time to show you what you need to live? The devil will never show you what you need to live because he has no clue. But Jesus came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. He offers it to everyone in this room, everyone who does not have it. He's offering that to you. His mercy It's yours for the receiving. You have to trust in Him and believe Him. You have to receive Him. And the word receiving, what we have learned, receiving is believing and receiving is like receiving Him as a guest into your life. And you want Him not simply to remain as a guest. You want Him to become your host. You become the guest. He becomes the host. He's the one who is the boss. You need to understand You have to exchange your death for His life. What a marvelous gospel we have. Would you bow your head? Do you know Jesus today? Do you know, therefore, God as your Father? Would you open your heart to Christ today? Give Him control of your life, saying, Lord, I don't know all I need to know. And He says to you, the only thing you need to know is that you are a sinner in rebellion against Me. And if you will give Me control of your life and quit trying to run your own life, then I will take control of your life and you will become My forever child if you will trust Me you will have eternal life. Would you, in the quietness of your heart, if you've never made that commitment, ask Jesus to come into your life? Would you? If you prayed that prayer with sincerity and trust in the Lord, He answered it. If you look this way, I would love to visit with you afterwards. And I say this often and people just walk away, probably some of whom have trusted Christ. This is not something to be kept to yourself. It's something to be shared with someone who cares about you, who can help you to grow in your walk with the Lord. So, we're going to be dismissed. And then I'm going to ask you who did pray that prayer to take a step of faith and come and visit. With me, Sam will be here, Eric will be here, others will be here, will be willing to talk to you about the 
commitment of faith you've made to the Lord today. God bless you.